Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. And it's time to talk more about skin color. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. So to get people up to speed here, we are tracing how people have talked about and written about and understood differences in skin color across time. And since we're a podcast about race, we were especially interested last episode in how and when skin color became the primary sign of race that it is today. Last time we started with ancient Egypt, as we often do, and insanely, we kept going till the 20th century. Yeah, so we saw last time how skin color became that signal, I guess, of race that it is so often today, and, and really has been since about the mid-1600s. And as that intercontinental slave trade intensified between Europe and Africa and the Americas. And as European diseases and policies killed off Aboriginal populations from the Caribbean through North and South America. Exactly. So skin color became a central symbol for an entrenched hierarchy that honestly would last far after intentional genocide and enslavement itself became outlawed. Yeah, it seems like last time we sort of saw emerging this struggle between natural philosophers who wanted to say skin color came from something essential, like something internal to members of a group, versus those who insisted that it might be caused by something external like environment. And not just the early scientists, there was the curse of ham stuff that was taken out of Genesis. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like it ever really resolved. I mean, even in the 20th century, we were talking about that there was still the kind of this hangover argument between those who thought that the causes were inside of us versus those that were outside of us, or we might say an essence versus environment argument. And it just kept hanging around. Yeah. And, you know, last episode, I was kind of expecting that once we got to the 20th century, we would bring up genetics and talk about how it solved this whole conundrum. Right? But we, we actually, last episode, kind of plowed through the 20th century without even discussing genetics. Yeah. Last time we left off talking about theories, more or less. So could you quickly remind our listeners what those theories are or were? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It's complicated stuff, so reviewing it is probably a good idea. So on the one hand, we had theories about why people lost darker skin pigmentation at higher latitudes. So... What we kind of landed on there was the idea that people need to have UV exposure in the skin to produce vitamin D, which would mean that you need lighter skin at higher latitudes where there's less UV in order to get enough vitamin D to have a healthy skeleton and other parts mm. of development, right? And we had just barely started to dip our toe into talking about theories for why people would have retained darker skin pigmentation at lower latitudes, but we didn't get into it very much at all. And I think we're going to talk more about that today. Right, Jim? Yeah, sort of. But but I need to warn you before we get started on this, this stuff is a whole lot more complicated than anyone. And by anyone, I mean us also <laughs> right. ever thought. The early skin color geneticists were proposing just a couple of genes that might be involved in skin color. And now we know that there are way more incredibly complex interactions between genes, between genes in the environment, and between populations and culture. So buckle up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, okay, Jim, it's complicated, but we'll parse through it, right? I mean, we're smart people. Our listeners are smart people. Well, we'll do our best to parse through it, yeah. 
So, so the stuff last episode got us up to the 1970s. And if you haven't already done so, listeners, please pause here and go back and listen to that episode. It's incredibly long, but it's not, <laughs> it's really pretty informative. And, and as Eric suggested right at the end of that episode, we're going to start now with a eugenicist. Ooh, yes. And not just a eugenicist, but the father of American eugenics, uh, a man named Charles Davenport. That's right. And surprise, surprise, genetics was immediately interwoven into the eugenics movement. Hmm. I'm assuming that also included a consideration of skin color and how it gets passed down, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, one day we're going to have to come back and do like a 30 part series on on eugenics itself. (laughs) But I think for this episode, it's safe to say that we can start just by saying that in the United States anyway, animal and plant breeders in the early 20th century took the new ideas of genetics and how to segregate and control those unwanted traits in plants and animals, and then jumped right on over into humans. So Charles Davenport, for instance, he helps launch the American Breeders Association when he's at the University of Chicago. And ostensibly, when he starts it in 1903, the American Breeders Association was supposed to study the impact of these brand new genetic ideas on animal breeding. He was a zoologist by training. But but where he really made a name for himself was about a decade later as director of the Eugenics Records Office on Long Island, New York. Yeah. Yeah. And we I think we've mentioned Davenport before on the podcast. But yeah. uh, since we're bringing him up here and we're talking in this episode about skin color, I'm guessing he had something to say about that. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. He proposed one of the first and and a very influential model of human skin color genetics in his 1913 work, The Heredity of Skin Color in Negro White Crosses. Mm -hmm. He divided the skin color of mixed race children up into five different categories, saying that intermediate skin tones between those categories were due to environmental variation. He modeled these five levels as coming from just two genes with two alleles each, using skin color data from Bermuda, Jamaica, and Louisiana. The more black genes, genes he called the duplex condition, that the individual had, the darker their pigmentation. Okay, so two genes, and how influential was this model? Well, it was still being seriously considered when I was taking my first anthro classes just a few years after that. <laughs> yes, I forgot how venerable you are. You you actually did live through a lot of this stuff. That's pretty cool. <laughs> right, yeah, and, and barely survived to tell the tale after getting tear gassed, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, not, not to rain on the nostalgia parade here, but as you just told us, Jim... One of the big trends here throughout the 20th century was we kept finding out that genetics were way more complicated than anyone suspected. And, you know, skin color genetics isn't exactly my area of expertise, but I know for a fact that this two gene model is way too simplistic. Mm. Absolutely, it is. But, But when it comes to skin color, those old justifications for racial hierarchy don't go away. And so Davenport proposed two genes, and that explanation stuck for quite a while. Okay, okay, but then the Holocaust and post-World War II civil rights movements, didn't all that eugenic stuff kind of get discredited? Well, funny enough, it was actually just before the Brown v. Board decisions in the mid-1950s that a Canadian named Reginald Ruggles Gates 
actually picked up this two gene thread from Davenport. Ruggles Gates. He's the one with the snuggly Teddy Ruxpin kind of sounding name. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, funny name, but not a funny legacy. He's worth mentioning here, though, because he actually had a direct connection to Davenport. Gates was a botanist, and he worked with the who's who of early genetics. He even did his PhD at the University of Chicago while Davenport was running the American Breeders Association and getting American eugenics off the ground. Okay, so clear connection there. So so Ruggles Gates is one of these plant guys who I'm guessing took the plant breeding stuff and applied it to people. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, yeah. so yeah, Gates's major scientific accomplishments were in botany, and he actually won several awards. And he published extensively in anthropology and Weird began horse. hanging out with E.A. Yeah. E. Hooten in the United States during the 1940s and early 50s. So in these anthropological works, Gates proposed a three-gene model and made different values for darkness. And he maintained that light skin was recessive. If you remember your genetics, recessive means that it would be crowded out. It wouldn't be expressed. So light skin was recessive to dark skin. So in order to have white skin, you could only have all recessive genes. Wait a minute. This sounds like that old one drop rule, like uh -huh. every, even one drop of black blood made you black in the US and therefore subject to Jim Crow and miscegenation. Very good. Wow. And, and it sounds like the Nuremberg codes, right? That sent people with distant Jewish ancestors to the gas chambers. Oh my God. Yeah. The more things change, right? Right. <laughs> and, and <laughs> perhaps it's not surprising to learn that our Teddy Ruxpin sounding Reginald Ruggles Gates was quite comfortable with fascism during and even after World War II. Ugh. And it's not surprising, perhaps, that he received so much resistance from fellow scientists, especially after the war. We noted in the third part of that series that we did on race and intelligence that he was funded by the Pioneer Fund in the early 1960s. And so he was part of this larger crew that created a whole journal called the Mankind Quarterly, which was in publication till really, really recently. Mm -hmm. And in that journal, which was run like a traditional scientific journal, it continued to promote what those editors of the journal called polygenic inheritance as the explanation for the origin of human race. Wait, so you mean they were still arguing for polygenism in the 1960s? That's correct. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But Gates really, really wanted everyone to know that he wasn't racist. So he could argue for polygenism. He could actually even closetly support fascism, but he wasn't a racist. Uh -huh. So when we talked about those UNESCO documents on race in that race and intelligence episode that we did, Gates wrote in reaction to him, quote, to say that all men are equal has not gotten us very far. It's uh -huh. more accurate to say that all men are different. And then to respect each other's differences, end quote. Now, it sounds soft enough. And he claimed to be surprised when people <laughs> took statements like that, plus all of his scientific work purporting to show how interracial breeding was bad. And they thought that he was supporting the notion that racial hierarchies, the old fashioned ones with white people mm. on top, were still totally fine. Yeah, that sounds like a non-denial denial to me. <laughs> right. right. So, okay, so we've got Davenport's two genes. We have Teddy Ruxpin's three genes. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. 
And now getting back to the genetics, as we should be doing in this episode, I I need to say that it wasn't just these extreme characters who were speculating about skin color and genetics. My very first textbook on genetics was written by Kurt Stern. It was his Principles of Human Genetics. He originally published that in 1949. No, that's not the edition I was working out of. (laughs) But four years after he published that first edition, he also was looking at skin color and he published right on the heels of Gates' main paper on the mm. genetics of skin color. Kurt Stern used skin tone data measured by a spinning color top. And by the way, mm. there's this marvelous publication by Charles Davenport in 1926 showing how to use the Milton Bradley child's toy to measure oh. skin color. That's how wow. this was being done. Yeah. Wow. wow. Well, Stern found that the best fit was three to five additive genes for this skin color data. And in a postscript to his article, Stern specifically criticized the unequal dominance-based model proposed by Teddy Ruxpin, (laughs) noting that it was worse at fitting the distribution of skin color than any of the models that Stern considered. He also said that the dark dominant model of Ruxpin would produce a distribution of skin colors very different and very much darker than what we actually have in the U.S. Okay, so Jim, you're saying not everyone looking at skin color and genetics around this time was a raving eugenic racist. Or Teddy Ruxpin. Or or a a creepy talking plush toy. But (laughs) we're still working here in the neighborhood of some like three to five genes. And I know it's more than that. Uh, Yeah, uh, that's right, Joe. Even when the measurement of skin color moved away from spinning tops and got into reflectance spectrophotometry, like you mentioned in our last episode, Mm -hmm. we stayed in the three to five gene territory for quite a while. For instance, one of the first pieces of work to make use of skin color measured in the more modern way was by an early influence and acquaintance of mine from grad school, the British human biologist Jeff Harrison. Hmm. He used a portable spectrophotometer to measure skin color variation in children of European and West African parents in England. And based on the distribution of the data that he collected, he argued for four additive genes with no dominance. Hmm. Then the American physical anthropologist Frank Livingston took his four gene model and he used a very innovative Fortran program to simulate how long it would take natural selection to produce the north-south variation shown in 14 populations that Livingston had data for. He said that variation could be accounted for by a very small difference in fitness over between 800 and 1,500 generations, or somewhere between about 16 and 30,000 years, well within the recent migration history of modern humans. Hmm. Okay, so here we're starting to get into modeling. But does this really work to account for the distribution we see of skin color now? No, but that's what I was taught. (laughs) I I didn't say that when we were doing our race class, did I, Joe? Fortunately not. No. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, So we've done two genes. We've done three genes. We've done three to five genes. Now we're back to four genes. Surely it gets 
more complicated as we get more of these measurements, especially with the reflectance spectrophotometry, right? Mm. Yeah, yes, you add more data and this just gets more and more and more complicated. Huh. And in a way, that's that's kind of the point that we need to make. It's just like race. Skin color isn't one thing that can be easily identified in our genes, hmm. as we'll uh -huh. see once we start digging into the more contemporary stuff on skin color and genetics. But the reflectometry stuff was an important turning point because it allowed for much more exact, reliable and replicable measurements of skin color to serve as the basis both for the distribution of human variation and for genetic modeling. Hmm. Yeah, I, I just want to echo the point you made there, Jim. I think that's a good one, right? That's, that's maybe like the whole point of our episode here, that skin color is not something we can easily trace in genes, just like right. race. So throughout the 60s to the 90s, reflectometry data is accumulating. In theory, that would have provided a better understanding of skin color distribution than that map we talked about in our last episode. Oh, yeah, the Biasudi map. Yeah, that was a map from Biasudi, which was made by collecting skin color data using those ceramic tiles that turned out faded in the sun. And, yeah. and you just filled in the holes in the map with guesses. So it wasn't exactly precise. So are things getting better, Jim, with the reflectometry well, stuff? Well, yes and no. I was part of a group that helped accumulate the global skin color data when I was a grad student at Penn State. I was in the human adaptability section of the International Biological Program, and the research programs that were conducted under that umbrella ran from the late 1960s on through the 70s. Mm -hmm. And there were scientists in 40 different countries who completed 230 different studies of populations all around the globe. And yeah. many of these studies included measurements of skin color using reflectance spectrophotometry to explore skin color as a climatic adaptation. That's great that you were so up close and personal with all this stuff, Jim. Okay, so 40 nations, <laughs> 250 or 230 different studies of populations. What in the world did they find? Well, one of the first analyses showed that even after adjusting for temperature and humidity, latitude was the most strongly associated variable with skin color. Duh. Higher the latitude, <laughs> lighter the skin color. Right. Uh Wait, uh, didn't we already know that, like, for several <laughs> centuries? I mean, even good old Biasudi's map with all its flaws kind of illustrates that pretty well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, we did. But it had not been scientifically measured and demonstrated literally until the 1970s. Huh. Wow. Since the British geneticists analyzing these measurements had controlled for temperature, they assumed that ultraviolet radiation was responsible huh. for the association. Okay, so then how did they explain that association? They didn't. Oh, they okay. just reported on the association okay. between latitude, temperature, humidity, and skin reflectance. Oh, okay. I mean, how do you do a global analysis like that, land on latitude, which is, of course, related to UV radiation, and not at right. least mention the vitamin D hypothesis? Oh, yeah. Derek Roberts, the first author, was a very no-nonsense British scientist type. Even, even when you were drinking scotch with him, he could be very straight, you know, very strict <laughs> and, and straightforward. So we shouldn't be as surprised by the absence of a just-so model in the paper. Uh. So even though this sounds like a so-what moment, studies like Roberts were laying the foundation that would allow us to redraw the old Biasudi map using better measurements of skin color and providing a better understanding of just how complicated the genetics were. Uh, wait a minute. You mean 
it's complicated. I think we should just basically put that on a t-shirt and just wear yeah. it around. Like it's I complicated. A, I want to tattoo it on my forehead. There you go. <laughs> but for many years, I used a 1981 article by a fellow physical anthropologist, Pam Byard, in my class on human adaptation at the University of Alabama. She used a state-of-the-then-art quantitative genetic technique to suggest a six-gene system. Okay, six genes. And I tended to emphasize that, but I didn't spend as much time talking about her other point, which was that she acknowledged the extreme complexity of skin color in humans, anticipating some of the discoveries that we'll talk about in a few minutes. As you know, we tend to simplify things when we're teaching in class. And hmm. <laughs> not go into the complexities. Jim's giving me an evil look right now <laughs> as he says that. I mean, it's true. I'm guilty of that. I will admit it. But okay, now I hate to keep harping on this whole be a Sudi map thing, but we spent a lot of time talking about it in our last episode. Right. And I still haven't really figured out why, especially given the context you just gave us, Jim, why this map has continued to be used so long after it was clearly deficient. Uh, so we're going to include a graphic with this episode. Compare that graphic to some of the colorized versions of the Biasudi map that we have in our former episode, the last one, and you begin to see why it has such staying power. It's, it's nice. It's just simple looking. You can unpack it quickly. That's why Biasudi sticks around. Okay. Okay. And speaking of where did that ridiculous skin color map with this episode come from? Well, it was drawn by a team using a program developed at Oregon State, just up uh -huh. the road from you, Joe, oh. way back in 1978. The map for this episode comes from a 1985 research conclusion piece in Current Anthropology, and it was based on 86 populations, and it was one of the first attempts at global mapping of skin reflectance data. But... It's not very pretty. <laughs> it doesn't look good. No, it no, it surely is not very pretty. But but maybe it's an indication that things were changing. I mean, it's a lot messier looking than the Biasudi one. So yeah. maybe that's what we get when we adopt some of this complexity that we keep foreshadowing in our episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it'll get there. Uh, n not long after this map was published, when we get into the 1990s, we begin to see interest in skin color kick up. And one of the first things that caught my interest was a book by the South African clinical pharmacologist, Ashley Robbins. He published the definitive human biology work on skin color in 1991. And I used that book as a guide in my classes on human adaptation for many years. Hmm. As you might imagine, for a pharmacologist, his summary of genetics were not terribly enlightening. Mm -hmm. But he brought up most of the characters that we've talked about already in the historical part. So what did he actually know about? He knew the history. He dredged oh. up all of those old ideas, okay. selective factors, genetics. And he looked at the different models that people had proposed in the past about driving skin color variation. And he gave them, for the most part, highly critical reviews. Hmm. And then he pushed some of his own notions. Okay. Like what? Well, for depigmentation, he favored a model based on cold injury or frostbite, selecting for less melanin. Okay, I didn't see that coming. Where, where where did that come from? 
Well, it's interesting, and this was a paper that came out while I was still in graduate school. There were anecdotal reports and epidemiological analysis of frostbite from World Wars One, Two, and the Korean War, huh. showing that American black GIs were more susceptible than white GIs to frostbite. Huh. Okay, and why haven't I ever heard of this? Because I refuse to perpetuate bad anthropology that's in my power. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So so that explanation doesn't really okay. hold water, we might say, but but it does remind me, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that we were gonna get more into theories for why darker skin color has stuck around in some populations, and here we are, and we're still talking about why lighter skin might have oh, emerged. Yeah. 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 Right. So last episode, we had this vitamin D theory for why we have lighter skin color in certain uh, places, which was just to remind you, it was proposed in the 1930s by a physician named Murray. And as far as I know, that one is pretty well accepted. But what about theories for why darker skin color stuck around in some, uh, some populations? You're right, Joe, that vitamin D model is taken pretty much for granted by now. But as for models of darker skin color, at the very end of the last episode, we mentioned the one proposed by Branda and Eaton in 1978, that darker skin would have been maintained in high UV environments to protect folic acid in the blood. Hmm. A number of circulating molecules, including folic acid, can break down with ultraviolet exposure to the skin. This is a process that we talked about last time called photolysis. Severe folic acid deficiency can affect normal fetal development. So the idea is that in areas where there's a lot of ultraviolet radiation, a lot of sun hitting the planet, a lot of sun rays, those environments would select for highly melanized skin, dark skin, to prevent this photolysis, assuming that the deficiency couldn't be made up in the diet. Hmm. Right. Okay. And to me, this makes sense because if you didn't have enough folic acid, it would have pretty serious and immediate consequences for reproduction. Like, you know, yeah. babies born with debilitating or even deadly conditions like spina bifida or anencephaly. So people without enough folic acid would not have survived well. And that would have exerted a lot of selective pressure for keeping darker skin. Yeah. And I can, I can also see how it goes nicely with that argument that vitamin D at higher latitudes also is adaptive. And that's what makes me really nervous, Jim, that you're about to tell me that even though this sounds really good, it, is, it, is it not right? Well, I, I hate to disappoint you both. Uh, but I knew it. Rob, Robbins has a series of criticisms of the Brandon and Eaton paper. He says specifically that the hypothesis that they put forward is insufficiently structured and the data provided are unconvincing. Mm -hmm. And as he points out, Folic acid deficiency isn't a huge problem for light-skinned people who live in the tropics today. We don't see a lot of light-skinned folks in the tropics having fertility issues. Okay, it, so it's it like just doesn't. The, yeah, it doesn't work the way people want it to work. Uh, okay, so it's like a repeat of the frostbite issue. <laughs> so, <laughs> it seems plausible, but then it turns out that you get more data and that doesn't yeah. work. Okay, so what selective factor does he actually zero in on that does explain darker skin in high UV areas? His favorite is sunburn. Come on, really? What? Really, he says that the most profound impact on selection would be from sunburn causing huh. impaired sweating in light-skinned individuals, which would then lead to hyperthermia and death. I mean, both of those explanations for darker skin color, both sunburn and folic acid, 
they seem a little bit more likely than the <laughs> uh, faith on losing control of the sun god's chariot <laughs> explanation. But okay, I thought. Yeah, right. So I thought that the vitamin D and the folic acid, that that was the current consensus, isn't it? Uh, Among those seeking simple answers. Oh, okay. Like me. Okay. But there are many considerations that complicate things. Uh, First of which is that none of the genetic models we talked about so far are actually in the ballpark of how complex skin color genetics are. And you have to remember, they're only talking about the number of genes. We haven't said anything about specific genes that might actually play a role. And and, and secondly, the selection pressures for dark and light skin are nowhere near as simple as the ones that you just mentioned, Joe, that Murray's vitamin D or Brandon and Eaton's folic acid models. The selection just isn't that simple. (sighs) (laughs) Never as simple as I would like it to be. I mean, it's actually the simplicity of those two models that makes them so satisfying to teach, but alas... Oh. Yep. I'm telling you, we need to get some t-shirts printed up and they need to say <laughs> it's more complicated than we thought on all of them. Yeah, I agree. So as an example, the same year that Robin's book came out on skin color, the Stanford anthropologist, William Durham wrote his book, Coevolution. Yeah, and one of his one. chapters is about milk drinking. Huh. Oh, wait a minute. We've already done the milk thing. Yeah. So I mean, that's the that's the thing that the white supremacists used in their poem about non-milk drinkers having to go back to Africa. Ugh. Yeah, and, right. Like that was way back in our series on race and health, right? We asked yeah. you never to bring it up again. Right, exactly. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, okay, okay. This this is different. This isn't, okay. the, this isn't the white supremacist poem. Okay. One of the you. things that Durham points out in this chapter is how lactose might enhance calcium absorption reducing the need for vitamin D synthesis among milk drinkers, even Mm -hmm. those in high latitudes. Okay. Okay. So that means that you wouldn't have to be as light skinned if you drink milk and surprise, surprise, it turns out that the association between lactose and calcium absorption is way more complicated than even Mm. Durham thought. It is likely that it involves prebiotic effects of lactose manipulating the microbiota, the gut microbiome that we have that helps to actually move the calcium across our gut wall. So I think that gut microbiome, along with racist poems, should not be mentioned anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I can go with that. (laughs) Okay, okay. So there it is again, right? More complicated than we thought. Yeah, and, and... That's officially now the theme of these episodes. The 18th century, it's more complicated than we thought. The 19th century, it's more complicated than we thought. The 20th century, and on and on. Okay, absolutely. Guilty as charged. That's because, though, it always is. The point that I'm trying to make here is that Murray was on to something back in 1934 when he pointed out that a diet high in fish and organ meats is likely to provide substantial vitamin D so that you wouldn't have to have lighter skin. Okay. And the fact that Durham sees a link to milk consumption doesn't disprove that. It just supports it in a different realm of the food complex. Mm-hmm. Similarly, folic acid is present in a lot of foods available in the tropics. And, and what this all means is that groups of people can be living in exactly the same ultraviolet radiation environment. Hmm. But depending upon their upper Pleistocene diet, they'd be under very different selective pressures to increase or decrease pigmentation. 
Okay. So what you're saying is it's not just external factors like UV radiation. It's also diet and lots of other stuff that could be playing a role here. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's not two genes. It's not three genes. It's not three to five genes. It's not four genes. It's not six genes. We don't know anything about <laughs> UV exposure. Can we say anything definitive about the evolution of skin color at this point? Well, we can say it's kept a lot of anthropologists occupied for a long time. Yeah, right. As has happened several times over the last 150 years or so, that resurgence of interest in skin color. In the 1990s, we began to see the compilation of skin color measurements and the discovery of an important gene implicated in skin color. Okay. Okay, I do know that one of those databases was put together by Nina Jablonski, who oh, we yeah. interviewed way back in September 2017 on yeah. this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she and George Chaplin tied global UV data to population skin color measurements using that database. Yeah, yeah. I remember they, they made a case for the relationship of UV to skin color, which relied on those vitamin D and folic acid models, kind of? Well, their maps are the best counterpoint to be a Sudi, for sure. The, but the other skin color analysis, the other database, hasn't received anywhere near as much fanfare. But an oversimplified graph from this second study has been paired with Biasudi's skin color map and is becoming somewhat of a skin color meme. Huh. John Relaford, the physical anthropologist, put together a database and regressed skin color values against latitude, showing different relationships in the northern and southern hemispheres. And this graph has shown up paired with Biasudi's map multiple times in the last two decades. Okay, but you said it's oversimplified. What did you mean by that, Jim? Well, originally, John presented the full scatter plot of data points in his figure, but what's happened is all of those data points have been removed, and it's just the lines, the, the trend lines from the regressions that have been published with Biasudi's map as if there's some sort of reified fact of nature mm -hmm. that this is how skin color is related to. Mm -hmm. And you don't get to see that messy relationship that is uh, part of the complication that we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. One of the other things that Relaford did with this database was he showed that skin color variation is greater in sub-Saharan African populations than it is in any other regional group. Huh. And also that the apportionment of skin color variation is very different than when we look at other phenotypic or genetic characteristics. Interesting. Okay. Uh, let me just try to wade through the weeds of that complex language you just threw out there, Jim. So what you're saying there, if I'm not mistaken, is that skin color is actually not a great marker for race. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It's surprising how much that's the case because we rely so much on skin color for yeah. our diagnosis of race. Mm. But if you think about it, if more skin color variation is found just within Africa, as opposed to any other region, and most Americans think of Africa as a place of black people, yeah, right. that tells us something about how both skin color and race aren't actually reflective of reality, but are clearly their own stereotypes, and they're very badly linked to one another. Mm. That's pretty cool. So I can see how Relaford is really, really important, but it keeps getting paired back up with that really simplistic BS model. So you said that there was significant genetic 
explanations too? We began figuring out some of the actual genes instead of saying it's two to four to six right. to X yeah. number of genes. Yeah. We began to figure out some of the actual genes. And the first one that caused a lot of excitement in the skin color community was a gene called the melanocortin 1 receptor, or MC1R, as it's commonly known among the cognoscenti. I remember that's about 20 years ago, right? That's when that was first acknowledged. Yes, a little, okay. well, about 25 years ago, yeah, okay. mid-1990s. A lot of work was done figuring out how different mutations to that particular gene might influence skin and hair color, including an analysis that was done about 15 years ago of the Neanderthal MC1R gene, suggesting that Neanderthals had light skin and red hair. Yeah. And there was, there were all those news reports at the time, right? That were like, surprise, <laughs> surprise, all the cavemen were gingers. And then everybody started drawing all the cavemen pictures and books with red hair and light skin and freckles and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And the red beard. But yeah. it turns out that MC1R is primarily a gene that influences skin color and hair color in populations with red hair and light skin. Okay. But it really plays a limited role in global variation. So it turns out to be less important than we hoped it was when it was first discovered. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the basic idea that selection works to favor dark skin near the equator and lighter skin tones at higher latitudes, that's still correct, right? Well, sort of, Ugh. but, but it, it's really pretty messy. There's our theme again. Oh, gosh. <laughs> a group looked at signatures of selection based on specific genes, and they considered 81 candidate skin color genes. The list wow. was up to that by 2006. Wow. And so, so we're up to 81 genes now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, okay. Is that because they're fixed. looking like... <laughs> I, I, am I right that they're they're casting such a wide net here because they're looking for these kinds of signatures in genomes that would allow them to at least theoretically impute how selection might have favored particular mutations? Yes. And, and when you're doing that, you want to get a, a very broad net out there. Although that 81 genes does not exhaust all of the possible genes that they could have been looking for mm. or would be today, for instance. When they did this, among the 81 genes, they found signs of selection for light skin in European populations. And they also found some signs of selection for dark skin in African populations. To me, their most interesting result was that the genes in the Africans were involved in DNA repair and cancer oh. prevention. Hmm. which goes back to some of the models that Robbins was talking about in his book about selection for dark skin being related to sunburn and skin cancer prevention. Interesting. So we're basically still holding on to where we were in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Or the 30s, if we, if we <laughs> say that. Yeah. Okay. So are there any other explanations now that we have 81 genes? Oh, this is a great one. Yeah, th okay. this is especially for Eric. One of the more interesting uh -oh. ones revolves around Darwin's sexual selection argument from the descent of man. Really? The Japanese biologist Aoki huh. just hated the vitamin D story, and he does huh. a very critical review of it. And instead, he favors an analysis that was done of the human relations area files. Oh, wow. This is an anthropological database that argued for mate preference for lighter skin in 47 out of 51 societies. Wow. 
He used this finding to revive Darwin's argument, saying that when selection is relaxed for dark skin, as we move out of the tropics and you don't have the selection to keep high pigmentation, then sexual selection alone could be enough to account for the reduction in pigmentation we see huh. in higher latitudes. Okay, okay. So, so this guy is saying instead of like concerns about not enough vitamin D or folic acid or concerns about sunburn and cancer, maybe skin differs, at least in part because we're supposed to prefer mates who have lighter skin than we do? Well, that's true. Once we get out of the tropics, once we get away from the high UV areas that are maintaining the selection for dark skin. And that's, Darwin's that's 1871 Victorian explanation for the preference of light skin continues to hang on. Uh, racism and sexism roars its head, yeah. <laughs> As genetic data on African populations has gotten greater and greater over the last couple of decades, we're also getting a better appreciation of how complicated the skin color situation is in sub-Saharan African populations. They show much more phenotypic and genotypic variability than we see in other parts of the globe. And this includes mutations and selection that go back at least a half a million years in some yeah. cases, and very recent admixture in just the last couple of thousand years. Huh. Okay, so, so Africa remains the most variable part of our global distribution. And, and that's not just true for skin color, but for lots of other yeah. Genetic variability, right? And uh, that's kind of an echo of what Relaford was saying, uh, right? That's right. E even though it's taken us a long time to begin to figure out what kind of mechanisms might be underpinning the skin color variability, the genetics of skin color variation in Africa are much more variable than in Eurasian populations, implicating scores of more genes than we oh. see accounts for most of the distribution in Eurasian populations. Wow. In addition, we have clear-cut evidence of the interaction between genes, or the technical term is epistasis, okay. that affects skin color. And genome-wide association studies are turning up additional regions of our genome that play a role. Okay. Complicated AF. So <laughs> what, do we, what do we do about this? Like, Should we be continuing to teach about skin color as an example of selection with vitamin D and folic acid as the prime motivators here when there's obviously still so much uncertainty in the literature? Uh, if you only have 15 minutes to talk about genes and culture and race, I just do a cut down version of sickle cell and malaria instead. You just wouldn't uh -huh. even talk about skin color? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just avoid it altogether and go right wow. to the sickle cell. But Eric, as an historian, I know that you'll be comfortable with telling students how complicated the skin color situation is. Yeah, I mean, we're totally fine talking about complexity. And we're also totally fine saying that scientists don't know what they're talking about very much of the time. <laughs> okay, I'm good with that. Yeah. <laughs> so so just to, to try to recap a little bit here, we teach that humans first evolved dark skin maybe one to two million years ago after our earlier ancestors lost most of their body hair. And that's where the folic acid story would come in, at least theoretically. And now we know that that is much, much, much more complicated in the sense that there are other explanations for what motivated that change other than just the folic acid one. Right. Okay. And then once our species began our last big worldwide migration out of Africa, maybe 60 to 70,000 years ago, we gradually lost much of our darker skin pigmentation through natural selection in theory to facilitate vitamin D synthesis as we moved up farther away from the equator. So that sounds good so far, but again, other potential explanations. 
right? Some right. might be a little less wishy-washy, though. Unfortunately, most of our students come away thinking that it worked just like that. Right, like this beautiful parsimonious example of the sickle cell gene we have. Yeah, right. But but the incredibly complex genetics of skin color doesn't make for that same kind of simplistic evolutionary scenario. It's important to point out that vitamin D synthesis in the skin or drinking milk or eating fish organs mm -hmm. are not the only ways to adapt to low levels of ultraviolet radiation for vitamin D. Right. And it that doesn't mean that vitamin D didn't play a role, but maybe other stuff did too at the same time and maybe stuff we haven't even thought about or discovered yet. Absolutely. Uh, also, it isn't something that would have just progressed in a linear fashion as we migrated out of the tropics and moved into higher and higher latitudes. And I'm assuming that's because we didn't just migrate once out in a nice linear fashion, right? We kind of like didn't move in a linear way. We've been mixing and returning and going for a really long time. Yeah, like we've talked about before, John Marks uses the analogy of a bowl of ramen noodles. That's what our migration history looks uh -huh. like in a genetic sense. Yeah. So yeah, one of the things that I wanted to point out is that there's this famous 10,000-year-old British fossil, Cheddar Man. Cheddar Man. Oh, yes. He sounds like and a cheese superhero. I'm, I guess he is, <laughs> with, a, with a yellow, yellow cape. Huh. The DNA from this fossil has alleles in it that suggest that he was very dark-skinned. And in fact, Europeans in general were very heavily pigmented for most of the 30 to 40,000 years they lived in this area. It wasn't until the last five to 10,000 years that Europeans evolved lighter skin tones. And that came at least in part as a result of migration from both the Southeast and from the East and Northeast as a result of admixture with populations that were moving into the European area. Mm. In other words, it wasn't just because selection favored lighter skin for vitamin D synthesis. Right, so actually you're right. That's a great example of yet another way in which lighter skin could have shown up. Right. And I mean, it's probably good to remind students that all of Eurasia was home to relatively dark skinned peoples until recently. Although I doubt that will gain much purchase with those uh, white supremacists who douse themselves in milk. <laughs> you mean like Richard Spencer and all those alt-right white supremacist guys who are guzzling milk? Yeah. Right. They would not like to, to hear that Eurasians <laughs> were dark skinned until recently. Right? right. Okay. So to go back. To recap, we started off with a two-gene, two-allele model from Davenport. And at this point, we can agree to say that in conclusion, it's more complicated It's ramen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's ramen. I guess you really weren't kidding when you said that right off the bat, Jim. But, uh, you know, actually, as I mentioned a little bit ago, I think the complication is where the insight arises. Or actually, you said that first, Jim. I mean, we spend a lot of time showing how race is an oversimplified way of trying to sort out human diversity. Right? The buckets that we use yeah. for skin color are the same. The variation underlying yeah. what we might see in a particular culture as white skin or black skin is incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple ways that you could arrive at lighter or darker skin. So even, even if people kind of look the same skin tone wise, that doesn't mean they have the same genetic profile underlying that apparent sameness. Huh. Eric. <laughs> We haven't given you a quote to read yet. Yeah. How about taking us out on this quote from a paper published very late last I year? I have to meet my contractual obligations. Exactly. No salary, no pay. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it seems now clear that the genetic basis of skin color is less simple than previously thought. Duh. I think we could have. We just said that. Okay. And back to the quote. 
and that the geographic variation in skin pigmentation is not exclusively driven by hard selective sweeps in a few key genes. We probably should unpack that. What does that mean? That means that we're not looking at something like sickle cell, where there's a strong selective factor like vitamin D synthesis that's driving a gene or a couple of genes or even a handful of genes in the direction of lighter skin as we move out of the tropics. Okay, good. Back to the quote. The recent increase in the number of populations studied for pigmentation variation, including African groups from a wide range of geographic origins, has revealed that the complexity of skin color can vary across populations and that the evolutionary history of pigmentation involved adaptations achieved by the concerted action of different types of selection, end quote. Isn't that what I told you when we started? (laughs) It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated in conclusion. And that's putting it simply. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist, and you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcasts, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.